All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would now, and open them to Galatians chapter 3. And it's good to be back in our study this evening after a couple of weeks. And our study tonight starts in verse number 6 of this third chapter. And I want to go right to the scriptures and get into our reading for this evening. So if you'll look in Galatians 3, starting in verse number 6, and you'll notice that we're breaking into a thought here. We covered the first five verses uh, over the last two or three weeks. So we're in in the middle of a thought here, but we'll start at verse number 6. Well, no, no, let's back up. Let's just go ahead and start at verse number 5. Uh, In verse number 5, Paul writes, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth it he by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they that which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, as we've studied repeatedly over these past few months in the book of Galatians, The great war for the soul is fought on the battleground of the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, if you look at verse number 21 in chapter 2, Paul says in this scripture, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And when we were going over that verse, I mentioned to you that the word righteousness there is the same word translated as justification in other places in this book. And this verse makes it very clear that there are only two ways that people seek to be just with God, to be righteous with God. And there are only two types of righteousness. One of these is a righteousness that is accomplished by our own efforts. And the Bible refers to that as the works of the law or righteousness that comes by the works of the law. And the other method is the righteousness that is accounted to us by God when we believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what the scriptures call the righteousness which is of faith. Now those two ways of being justified are diametrically opposed to one another. And the Bible teaches that those two methods are so opposite of one another that they never can meet. Now, as we know, the great problem that existed in the Galatian church was that the Galatians had received the grace of God by believing in Christ. They were saved. They were real converts. But they'd been led away in their faith, been led astray by those who were teaching that in order for a person to become a Christian, first of all, he had to become a Jew. And so that means that a Christian must subject himself, or a Gentile, I should say, must subject himself to the rites and rituals of the Jewish religion. And then when he had done those things, then he could come to Christ and have his faith completed. 
Now you'll notice in verse number 3 that Paul responds to such an idea in this way. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Now there we see an acknowledgement by Paul that these people were Christians. He says they have believed, they have begun in the Spirit, they have been saved, they are right with God, and they were right with God when they placed their faith in Christ. But now they've been taught that their righteous standing with God is not yet complete and they need something else. And so Paul is just really incredulous over this shift in their understanding. And so in chapter 3, he begins formulating an argument against this new position that they have taken up. And he has different ways of going about it. And the first way that he approaches this problem, this, this subject of justification, is to appeal to the experience of these Christians. What happened to them at the time that they believed? What happened to them at the time that they were converted? Had they forgotten what Christ had done for them at the cross? And so Paul asked them to think about that. Have you forgotten how that the Holy Spirit regenerated you? And are you not aware that the Holy Spirit came to live in you? He indwells you. And so we asked them to go back and to recall what happened to them. And then based upon their experience of the new life that they had in Christ, they would know that the Holy Spirit had been given to them and given to them upon belief. And it wasn't because of any ritual that they'd gone through. They hadn't subjected themselves to any ritual. Now, our experience is a good indicator of where we stand with God. We ought not to discount our feelings. We know what happened to us. You know what happened to you. Uh, you. You know what happened to you on the inside when you placed your, when you placed your faith in Christ. You, you've experienced a change of life and a change in direction. And that was worked in you by the Holy Spirit. And that's an experience that you can't discount. But personal experience is not the highest authority that we have. Now, we all know that there are people that have been deceived by personal experience. The charismatic movement is notorious for this. Uh, These people are really hard to shake from their beliefs that something, some experience that they have actually trumps any other methods of verification. And then we also know people that are non-charismatic and they have the same problem. Uh, They come to church and they've walked down a church aisle. They said that they gave their hearts to Jesus. But then they fall out of the church. They don't show any real fruits of regeneration in their lives. And so when you ask them, well, are you a believer in Christ? Do you really believe in him? Are you really saved? And for verification of it, they go back to their experience that they did walk down the aisle, that they did shake the preacher's hand, that they did walk down into the waters of baptism. And that experience is what they rely on. That is their personal verification of their salvation. And that shows you that experience is not the ultimate deciding factor of truth. So what is the ultimate verifier that we are truly the children of God? Well, the highest authority is God himself. And the way that we know what God thinks about things and what he says that we need to do is found in only one place, and that's in the scriptures. The scriptures are the ultimate verification for how we are saved and what must be believed in order to salvation. And so on any subject that touches true religion or false religion, we have to go to the Bible and regard it as the standard that we go by. 
Now, in fact, uh, we refer to the Bible as the canon of Scripture. Canon is a word that simply means the measuring rod. It means the rule by which you measure things. And the canon is the standard by which all of our practices are judged. So we are fond of saying, and it's our way of putting this, that the Bible is our rule of faith and practice. That's what we go to. That's the standard that we rely on. Now, when it comes then to this most important doctrine of justification, the place for us to go for the right understanding of what the truth of this matter is really shouldn't be a mystery to us at all. The place for us to go is to the Bible. The most important doctrine of Christianity is going to find its foundation in the Word of God, and right understanding of that doctrine is, is, is crucial for understanding anything else that's in the Bible. You really have to understand this doctrine. So we have to go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about it. Don't let experience be the thing that rules us. Let's go to the Bible and see what it says. So that's what Paul does in this section. Now, first of all, he did talk about their experience. He even verified their experience. He was there. He gave them the gospel. He knew what had happened to them. But he doesn't stop with that. And he says that experience is not the highest authority. So what he does now in this next part is he goes to the scriptural argument for justification by faith. Now, interestingly, the Apostle Peter had the same approach when he wrote his second letter. Now, I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter for just a moment, and we're going to look at the first chapter in 2 Peter. And while you're turning there, I just remind you that Peter's hypocrisy was a huge looming influence over this Galatian letter. And he could certainly appreciate the correction that he received from the Apostle Paul where he was wrong. And he could appreciate the method that Paul used for proving his doctrine. And so Peter used the very same method. He talked to his readers about experience and then he led them to the highest authority, which is the word of God. Now this is what he says in Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 16. He said, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now we're real close to getting to this story in the book of Matthew, Matthew 17. It won't be too long before we get there. And this is what Peter's talking about here. He's talking here in those verses that we just read about his personal experience, that he was sure who Jesus was because he stood there on the Mount of Transfiguration and he was there with with, uh, James and John and they saw Jesus transfigured before them. They saw Jesus changed into a glorious appearance. They were eyewitnesses of that fact. They saw it with their own eyes. But was that Peter's highest authority? Now you would think that Peter seeing this with his own eyes, certainly he can believe what he saw with his own eyes. I mean, that has to trump everything else, doesn't it? But that's not what Peter relies on. Notice how he goes on and he talks about the ultimate authority. He says in verse 19, for we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now he's saying more sure than even what we've seen. 
whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." Now, Peter says it's not just what we've seen. Now he goes back to the scriptures. Peter's highest authority is the word of God. It was the Old Testament. It's what the prophets said about Jesus because he says the prophets were men that were moved to write what they wrote by the Holy Spirit of God. And there is no higher authority than what God says. Folks, that's something that charismatics and all others need to learn, that when the scriptures are against your experience... You believe the scriptures. Paul gave us a taste of that in the first chapter. He said, even if an angel from heaven comes and he preaches to you another gospel than what we preach, he said, let him be accursed. He said, don't believe an angel. Now that'd be hard for us to do, wouldn't it? If an angel came here and he stood in our midst tonight and he says, now what you're reading there in the Bible is not true. Now don't pay any attention to that. There's another way that you can be saved. You know, the Bible says, the Bible says, don't believe him. Even if an angel from heaven comes, don't believe him. Paul says, don't believe him. Why? Because what Paul received, he received from the mouth of God himself. There is no higher authority. Now we've learned that Galatians is probably the first of Paul's letters in the New Testament. At this point, there are no scriptures for Paul to refer to except the Old Testament. And if this is one of Paul's later letters, a little bit later, and he has written something else, he, he wouldn't have appealed to that anyway. But here's what we really need to understand about this, that the Old Testament is sufficient to teach us this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Some people don't understand that. They think that the Old Testament was all about the dispensation of the law, and during that time, salvation was by the law. And so when Christ came, he changed all of that. He changed it to salvation by grace through faith alone. Well, Jesus refuted that idea himself when he was speaking on the, uh, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount because he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. There was nothing wrong with the law at all. And we'll get into that a little bit later as we go on in our study. The Bible is consistent from cover to cover on this subject. All the way through, it's always been this way, that salvation is not by our works, but it is by the grace of God. And so Paul is not afraid to go to the Old Testament to prove his point. I remember when I first started pastoring the church here that I encountered a little bit of opposition from some quarters because I spent a lot of time teaching in the Old Testament. One of the early series that I did was on the tabernacle. And for the first seven years of ministry here, I made sure that on Sunday nights every week that we had a message that came from the Old Testament. Well, there's nothing at all wrong with the Old Testament, nothing wrong with preaching from the Old Testament because the salvation that you find there is the same salvation that you find in the New Testament. The method's always been the same. So Paul then goes to the Scriptures, and the only ones that he has to go to are the Old Testament. And he has no fear to go there because he finds support for his doctrine of justification by faith alone. So where does he go? 
Well, the first point in your outline is what we'll talk about tonight. We'll spend all the rest of our time right here. Paul goes back to talk about the children of Abraham. The children of Abraham. Now, the lead-in question to get to this scriptural proof uh, on the doctrine is what we read in Galatians verse number 5, Galatians 3 verse 5. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth it he by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Now, I want to shorten up that question just a little bit because the central issue here is justification by faith versus justification by the law. So we can phrase his question in verse number 5 this way. Does righteousness come by faith or by the law? And so that leads him to the scriptures. In verse 6 he says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, I have to tell you that the Judaizers that Paul is arguing against would have to be stunned to hear an argument like this. I mean, they they would like nothing better than for Paul to get into the Old Testament. They're experts in the Old Testament law. Their favorite approach to this problem is to go to the Old Testament and talk about all the standards that have been set, all the things that have to be kept. And so they would be content just to rest their arguments on Moses, but Paul stepped further back than Moses. I mean, they considered Moses to be the champion of the law, and so Paul goes further back to a different era. He goes much further back. He goes all the way to Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish nation. Well, is that a problem for them? Not at all, because who did they claim to be? They didn't say, well, we are the children of Moses. No, they said, we are the children of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Now hold on to that thought for just a moment. They said Abraham is their father. So to them, Abraham is also an ally. They're most happy to talk about Abraham because no doubt, some point, uh, somewhere along the way here, they're going to appeal to the one who started it all, the one who started the rite of circumcision that made the difference between Jews and Gentiles. This is one of the ways that you told the difference between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews have the covenant of God, they are circumcised, and the Gentiles are not. But what Paul is about to show them is they don't really want to go to Abraham. Abraham's not in favor of them because Abraham is actually going to deal a crushing blow to this false means of justification that they believe. Now, here then is the main premise of the argument. And that is, Abraham's faith was accounted for righteousness. And we see that even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, if you want to know why the Pharisaical Jews hated Paul, why they hated him so badly, you can pin it right here. And that's because he was able to take the very same scriptures they used and he was able to turn the tables on them and destroy their arguments. He was as forceful as they were in the belief that the promise of the blessings of God belongs to those who are the children of Abraham. Paul believed that just as strongly as any of the Jews believed that. But the big question is, who are the children of Abraham? Now, to get to that answer, 
To get the answer to that question, you have to go to the Old Testament and to look at the events that happened there surrounding Abraham. What is it that leads up to the argument that Paul is about to make? Well, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Now, previous to this, the Bible is dealing with the covenant that God made with Noah. Does everybody know the covenant that God made with Noah? What did, what did God say to Noah? Well, he said, you know, I'm never going to destroy the world by a flood again. And so God put a rainbow in the sky, and that was a sign of the covenant that he was never going to destroy the world in that way again. And so in the previous chapters, the Bible's dealing there with Noah and his family. Noah's sons and Noah's family, their wives, began to repopulate the earth. And one of Noah's sons was Shem, and he was the son that God used to preserve the ancestry of the Messiah. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and there you find the first promise of the Savior. And Shem is the one who uh, kept alive that line of the Messiah that was promised to Adam and Eve. And then from verse 10 in chapter 11, the line of the Messiah splits off from Shem. Shem had many different sons and daughters, but mentioned specifically in, this, in that passage is a man by the name of Arphaxad. So Arphaxad is the one who begins the next step that leads to the next great covenant that God will bring, and through him we get to Abraham. Now in the first verse of chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant gets its start. Verse number 1, chapter 12. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will curse them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Of all the people that there were in the world, God chose Abram, And he spoke to him and he told him to leave the place where he was, go into a different land, to a place he knows nothing about, and God promised that when he got there that he would bless him and make a great nation of him. He said, through you, Abraham, or Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, if you want, you can mark that in your Bible as a confirmation of the promise that was made to Adam and Eve that Christ would come and that he would crush the head of the serpent. That Christ would come and he would defeat the powers of darkness that afflict those that are bound by the curse of sin. That all people and nations and the nations around the world would be blessed because through the seed of Abraham... And we're going to talk a lot about the seed of Abraham coming up. But the seed that he's speaking there is of Jesus Christ. The seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. He's the one who will come. Well, you fast forward 10 years and you get to the 15th chapter of Genesis. Let's go there. Genesis chapter 15. 10 years later, it says in verse number 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. 
And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now verse number 6 is the verse that Paul quotes in Galatians chapter 3. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now why is this place so significant? Well, you can start with this, and we'll see it in later verses in Galatians, that this was long before God had written the law. There were no laws, there were no rituals for Abraham to follow. At this point, Abram is just talking back and forth to God. Abram went where God told him to go. And at first, Abram was told that God would bless him, that he would bless all nations. But ten years had gone by, and Abram had no children. The heir to Abram was not his own child. So if he were to die, and he was getting older, if he were to die, the steward of his house would be the one who would receive his inheritance. And so God said to Abram, Abram, I'm going to give you a son, your own son, and he will be your heir. Now at this point, Abram was 85 years old, and the promise that that could happen was highly improbable. And yet, rejecting all of those improbabilities that this could actually happen, Abram believed in God. Now, it's important to catch the distinction in verse 6. It does not say that Abram believed the Lord. It said he believed in the Lord. And that's very important. That means that he put full confidence in the power of God to do what was physically impossible to do. And what does the Bible say? Because of this, his faith was counted for righteousness. There you can substitute the word justification. That his faith was counted for justification. Now, why is it important to make that distinction between believing the Lord and believing in the Lord? Well, believing the Lord is a righteousness based on faith for faith's sake. But when you talk about believing in the Lord, that is a faith that's grounded in the actions of another. Now, Paul's point is that Abraham's righteousness was not in his actions. There was nothing that Abraham did that made him righteous, but it was because of God's actions. God's actions are brought to the forefront. Now, you can search the scriptures through, and you can take off from the call of Abraham in chapter 12 to the promise that we find in Genesis 15, and you know what's missing in all of that? You know what's missing? Well, let's look in verse or chapter 17, we'll see what's missing in those two, uh, at the time of those promises that they're made to Abraham. What's missing? Well, 17, chapter 17, verse 9. God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house, or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So what is the missing ingredient in those first two passages? 
circumcision. And yet we find that Abraham was justified. He was counted as righteous in chapter 15, and that was 14 years before circumcision was given. Now, you see where Paul's going with this? He's letting them know that neither circumcision nor any other law were way before the laws of Moses. Not, not circumcision or any other law was in place at the time that Abraham was justified. So the scriptural argument comes from the number one patriarch that we have in the Old Testament, and it says that from the beginning, there was no one in Israel that was ever counted righteous, no one ever justified, except by believing in the Lord. Now the next part of it, I don't have time to develop tonight. I don't want to keep you tired folks up all night. So the next part of this question gets answered uh, uh, as we go on. Who are the children of Abraham? And just to give you a little bit of a taste of that, the Jews loved this argument. I mean, they, they, didn't, they said they didn't need anything because they're the children of Abraham. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't need faith. They didn't need to repent. They didn't need anything. And that's because they're already set. They are the children of Abraham. Why, why do they need anything else? Why did they hate Paul so much? Well, the same reason that they hated Jesus and they hated John the Baptist, because all three of them, Jesus, John the Baptist, and Paul, knocked the props out from under their favorite argument, we are the children of Abraham. Now, the children of Abraham are blessed. But what if they're not really the children of Abraham? The children of the Abraham folks are the only ones that are blessed. Do you know that? That means us. Only the children of Abraham are the ones that are blessed. So how do you become a child of Abraham? Well, John the Baptist had an interesting perspective on this. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll finish with the scripture there. And Matthew 3 introduces us to this no-holds-barred preacher named John the Baptist. And this is the guy who's not afraid of offending anybody. Now, preachers today like to dress the gospel up. They want to make it easy for people. They want to remove sin from the equation. They want to take out repentance from their gospel presentations. And very sadly, there are a lot of Baptists that do the same thing. I got an advertisement from a, one of the fundamental ministries some time ago when they were introducing a, a new evangelism track. I mean, they were advertising it for us to buy. And I read the tract, and I couldn't find one mention of the word repentance. Now, they talked about believing, but there was no repentance in it. And I know what one of their arguments would be. I've heard it before. They would say, oh, but the concept is there. The concept of repentance is there. We don't use the word repentance because lost people don't understand it. Now, that's one of the huge problems with evangelism today. They get rid of the Bible words. The Bible words are important, and if you're afraid that you're going to have to spend too much time explaining things to get somebody saved, well, you got somebody that's going to make a false profession anyway. Don't be afraid to explain too much to people. But the other problem, of course, they, they've redefined repentance anyway, so they might as well leave the word out. They, they've destroyed the meaning of it already. But let's look at what John the Baptist said to Pharisees that came to him for baptism. He was Holy Spirit smart, just like Paul was, and so he already anticipated arguments before they were made. So let's start at verse 5 in Matthew 3. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, that is by John the Baptist, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, 
O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now there you see what the Jews' argument would be. We are children of Abraham. We are justified. We have national salvation. We're saved just because of who we are. Now do you see the bit of misinformation here that is so critical in their argument? The thing that they've got wrong, the misinformation? They said we are of Abraham. And indeed, according to Genesis chapter 12, being a child of Abraham is a critical factor. But the problem is you have to be right about being a child of Abraham. And John said, don't count on it. God can raise up stones and make children of Abraham. Now, they had their eyes on the physical. John was a preacher of the spiritual. And so he pointed to the rocks that were there on the riverbank, I suppose. And there were plenty of those. You know, if, if Israel has a second name besides the promised land, it has to be the rocky land. I mean, it's no wonder that the children of Israel are always raising heaps of stones everywhere they went. You read through the Old Testament, and those children of Israel are always building something out of stone. You'd understand that if you ever went to Israel. But anyway, John pointed to the rocks, and he said, You bunch of hardheads, you bunch of stony hearts, God can make a whole new bunch of the children of Israel out of the rocks of the field if he wants to. He can raise up children to Abraham. You say that you're children of Abraham? Your natural descent does not make you a true child of Abraham. Well, how do you become a child of Abraham? Well, apparently you could be a rock for all the good your parentage does. And we find out that Paul was a second John the Baptist on this issue. Look at what he says in verse 29 of our text, Galatians 3:29. And if ye be Christ, and if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now there's where I'm going to leave it with it, leave it tonight. You think about that statement, and if ye be Christ. What does it mean to be a child of Abraham? It's actually all linked to this great Bible doctrine, the most important one of all, justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this is why, I mean, you see it come out in the preaching all of the time, why, why we're so, so adamant about these kinds of things. Sola Scriptura, Sola Christa, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Soli Deo Gloria. Scripture only, Christ only, grace only, faith only, to God only, or God alone be the glory. That's what we stand for. Give God all the glory. Salvation is all of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a great opportunity that we have to look in this passage of scripture tonight. How important that it is that we recognize where true righteousness comes from, that um, Paul makes it so clear Uh, The Bible is so clear about this. We can't do anything to merit our salvation. All that we can do is look to Jesus Christ. And we know, Lord, as we go through these these scriptures, we'll we'll see that uh, Paul will teach us what the law is for, what the true purpose of it is. And the purpose is grand. The purpose, uh, the law serves its purpose. And we thank you, Lord, that it does because it points us to the only one who can save us, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are your children. We are the spiritual seed of Abraham. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.